Um, hey, Monica, could we like have our show intro be the song that you sang for me the other day that <laughs> you sent me? Your your birthday rap. Go, 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 show. It's your birthday. <laughs> she rapped for me for my birthday. And now I have it saved forever on my phone. Oh, I should make that my ringtone. You can I forward like to whoever. Fifty cents. Well, the song is called "In the Club," but at the beginning of it talks about it being your birthday. <laughs> it's the best gift I got. I'm telling you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Grace Pratt, editor of the podcast, and something has happened today that has never happened before since Monica joined us. Uh, we have our entire team here and available for the podcast. We're so excited to discuss our incredibly thrilling topic of measurement, <laughs> uh, which really is exciting, and I think we are going to have a great conversation about um, but I'd love for everyone to introduce yourselves. Um, I was talking to my six-year-old the other day, his name is Henry, and he recently has, he, he came to me and he said, mom, I finally decided. And I was like, you finally decided what? He said, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, okay. Cause we've been through a few iterations. There was like a three-year period where his main goal in life was to be a popcorn trolley driver. Uh, was very committed to that. He had a whole business plan. He was going to have children and teach them everything they needed to know about the popcorn trolley driving business. I, it was elaborate. Um, but recently he's decided that he wants to be a scientist. So he came to me and he said, mom, I want to be a scientist who studies molecules. And I was like, that sounds really great, but I, I don't know about much about molecular science. I'm a different kind of scientist. And then I had a moment of uh, where my heart dropped because his face went blank and his jaw dropped. And he said, you're a scientist. And it totally blew his mind. And I'm like, I failed you, my child. <laughs> um, so what I would love to hear from you all as you're introducing yourself uh, this morning is when you were six years old, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I'm going to call out some names when we have everybody here so everyone doesn't talk at once. Uh, right around the circle for me on my Zoom window is Bridget. Name is Bridget Beachy. And oh gosh, we got to do the whole intro. If they've been watching this whole time, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, all things PCBH, blah, 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 blah. Who doesn't go, know who Bridget Beachy is? Go, go integrated care, all things integrated care. And that too, Neftali. <laughs> <laughs> Although... I don't know if I've ever said on the podcast, I think I was introduced to you, Neftali, like four times before you knew who I was. I, I'm sure. In person. I, 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 I'm, I don't doubt that at all. I, yeah. I'm so bad with names and faces. You're like, oh, it's so good to meet you. And it was like the fifth time. And I'm like, <laughs> all right. Uh, but now I do that to people. So it's like coming full circle. And, you know, I don't mean to. It just, it just happens. So. Anyway, uh, what I wanted to be when I grew, when I was six and uh, was thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up uh, was I wanted to be an Olympic sprinter because I was super into sports and running. And I just thought it'd be the coolest thing ever. 
so that's very timely with the the whole Olympics. Then I realized that I was not that athletic, not that athletic, not to Olympic level, my God. So the dreams were crushed and had to find new dreams. <laughs> so we're racing each other at the next CFHA conference. Got it. I'm going to sit out from that competition. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I will cheer you on from the sideline. Uh, next around my little Zoom circle is Naftali. Hey, everybody. My name is Naftali Serrano or Naftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at CFHA, psychologist, six years old. Um, I believe that at six, I was in between. I know that I wanted to be like my dad, like a lot of kids do. And my dad is an auto mechanic. So I wanted to fix cars like my dad did. Um, that was a dream that quickly shifted because I quickly realized that I really don't like getting my hands dirty. <laughs> Um, literally my dad would get frustrated with me because he would be trying to teach me how to like change the brakes on a car and all that. And all I would be doing would be like looking for a place to wipe my hands off. <laughs> so that didn't work out too good. Uh, but then I think I shifted to wanting to be an airline pilot and, um, yeah, I guess I figured that was a good way to do some stuff with, uh, my hands and not get dirty. I don't know what my six-year-old brain was thinking. What is any six-year-old? As the parent of a six-year-old, I will say, who knows what any six-year-old is ever thinking? <laughs> uh, next is Christine. Hi, I'm Christine Borst. Uh, what do we want to say today? Uh, adjunct professor, creative entrepreneur, medical family therapist. I wanted to be a doctor. Of course, I had a list, right? That feels very authentic to what I do these days anyways. I wanted to be a doctor and a writer and a librarian, I think. I think I thought librarians just got to sit around and read all day, which is not actually true. As someone who worked in the library in college, it was a bit of a letdown. But um, I say technically the doctor thing we can check off because people do have to officially address me as doctor. And second, I am writing. So three quarter credit for that, for a little six-year-old Christine. Awesome. I love that. Uh, next is Deepu. Hello. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening. Uh, this is Deepu George. I am uh, coming to you from the Rio Grande Valley uh, at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And I am a family therapist by training and I work as a behavioral health consultant and champion PCBH related work here. So six years, I, I can't quite remember, but I think it's fair to say my dad is a priest, and so I wanted to be a priest. And but I, what I do have a clearer memory is sixth grade is when we moved to the U.S. from India. And of course, I have you know total culture shock and whatnot. But I saw, I remember seeing Apollo thirteen. Uh, I think a year or two later, and being really enamored by wanting to be an astronaut. And uh, clearly. I live close to SpaceX. That's the closest I'm going to get because uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk is down the road from here. But on the other hand, with the priesthood thing, uh, I don't think I've kind of revealed this. I think Naftali knows about it a little bit. I've been in, in a process called discernment with the Episcopal Church, and I am uh, accepted to move on to ordination. And so I have to do my theological training and stuff over the next few years. So something I kind of let go a long time ago uh, it's come full circle. And so 
uh, some childhood dreams, you know, coming back. Wow, that's really beautiful. Congratulations on that transition, Deepu. I'm really happy for you. Um, and then we have Monica. Well, whoop whoop for having the whole team here. Um, my name is Monica Williams Harrison. I am a licensed clinical social worker um, by trade, a behavioral health consultant, and National Association of Social Worker Board Director. Six-year-old self was not a popcorn trolley distributor, because that actually sounds pretty awesome. I forever just knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, that was my thing. Like, I wanted to be a teacher. I think it was more because I wanted to boss people around. I did that a lot with cousins and stuffed animals and all of that. Um, and I actually did end up um, getting my early childhood, birth through kindergarten licensure, teaching degree, and taught actually for quite some time um, before going back to graduate school um, for social work. So I guess I did fulfill that and went above and beyond and teaching in a different capacity in terms of integrated care and still bossing people around because these five kids over here, like they need some direction. So that's still there too. You know, it's really a gift to them. You know, they, right. they should appreciate it. Absolutely. The gift, the gift <laughs> that keeps on giving. Well, I kind of skimmed over myself. I'm um, the behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And when I was six, I wanted to be a teacher. And then when I got a little bit older, I wanted to be a doctor. And now I teach doctors. So it really is the best of both worlds. Uh, everything works out in the end. Uh, I apologize to our listeners if we end up with a little bit of children noises on the podcast. I've got a four-year-old with pink eyes sitting on my lap. So, you know, life doesn't stop uh, in the work that we do. Uh, so I want to um, uh, This check. is a collaborative family. Absolutely. We wouldn't be practicing what we preach if we didn't sometimes have our families involved. Uh, Neftali, do we have any news and notes? Uh, Nothing big today. Just a reminder to folks to uh, check out our conference site. Um, There's more and more information we're putting up every day. We filled out our extended learning opportunities. It's going to be some fantastic learning opportunities um, for uh, deep dive topics throughout the month of September. And then a reminder that we've got an in-person event on October 15th in Madison for those who are able to make it. It's going to be a special uh, one-day event for CFHA members to regather. And then the following week, we have our full conference virtually so that anyone who's uh, you know, wanting to get knee-deep into integrated care stuff can do it. So integratedcareconference.com. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys in the fall. Thank you so much. Well, we have a great show today. I was joking a little bit before, but I really think this is such an important topic. You know, we try to balance on the podcast. We know that in the CFHA, we have members in all kinds of different roles, in clinical roles, in organizational roles, um, researchers. And one of the things that kind of bridges across the a lot of those topics, because it's such an important piece of application and program development, is measurement. How are we measuring? What are we doing? How are we demonstrating um, that we're being helpful? What do we even need to look at? Um, so I want to open broadly, uh, just for anyone to throw out some initial ideas that you have. Um, you know, when I'm talking to the residents a lot, um, you know, it's, I, I'm 
always talk, thinking through that at medical education perspective. And this is July. This is the new calendar year for residency. And we have our brand new interns. And I was sitting with our uh, first years um, uh, yesterday for their first year support group. And we were talking about why and the importance of being grounded in why we do what we do and the meaning. Um, and so I wondered if we could kind of start our conversation by talking about why is this important? Why do we need to be measuring you know, outcomes or, or all of the things? We'll get into what we measure, but why do we measure? Well, I'll jump in and say that we, we measure because we care. There's certain things that we really care about. Um, we care about things like access, right? And a lot of us are trying to solve access problems to behavioral health care. And we know that when patients get referred from primary care to specialty mental health, especially these days, um, that that doesn't happen. And we care about figuring out ways to measure so that that happens a lot less. And so that what we're doing is solving that problem. And we care that keep people get better um, in particular categories. Uh, so we care about kids, for example, we care about how kids do in school. And if kids are struggling with ADHD, we care that we are tr making sure that we're tracking effectively. So those kids don't fall through the cracks and then have poor school performance and, um, you know, have a, a entire years of academic uh, study lost. And I think we also care about our teams. Um, and we care about encouraging each other and lifting each other up and uh, celebrating. So when I think of measurement, I also think of celebration. And I think actually Bridget and, and her partner, David Bauman, do a great job of that, of just using metrics to celebrate. Be like, yes, this is what we're doing. Because in the middle of especially a high volume business like primary care, you can get lost in all the stuff you're doing. You never stop to realize the impact that you're having, right? So I think I think that's actually a big function of, of measurement for me. I'll jump in. Um, this is Monica. I completely agree with Neftali and love to watch um, the excitement from uh, Bridget and, and her team um, because it does bring joy to me. I will say when I am a lot of times talking with individuals about measurement, um, it's around the business side of it because there are data-driven decisions that have to be made, or you wanna hire additional staff, or you wanna implement something new. And in the business of healthcare, you have to be able to show that, there, um, that there's a, a revenue component associated with it, whether we like it or not. Um, it's kind of how, how things go. And so for me, yes, quality, but also recognizing from a business standpoint, um, it's necessary to be able to show that what you're doing is working or why you might need something additional or how you can expand. Um, it ends up coming down to quality, but also the dollars and cents too. And I would reframe that as saying, you know, I, we care about being good stewards, you know? Yes, good really financial do. stewards of, of finances, yes. Yeah. The thing that I was beginning to think about with measurement-based care with um, some of the challenges that we've had in the system here versus other stories that we hear is, the level of integration of the measurement that comes from top and all the way to the frontline staff that kind of delivers it, right? So often um, a, a big disconnection is the kind of the clinical leadership saying, we're going after these quality 
measures. We're going after this to get extra payment for performance, et cetera. And they've decided a lot of the things and the clinicians aren't uh, fully in the know, or even if the clinicians are in the know, there is the frontline staff who never gets asked as to how things ought to be implemented, how things ought to, what, what makes best sense for you to implement this and at what part of the visit would it make sense for you to do this and what would be the extra uh, power in terms of personnel needed to kind of do all of these things, right? And it, and what that translates to is people hear measurement-based care and then they kind of have this um, aversive reaction to it, that, that reaction that's not helpful, um, a reaction that doesn't lead to celebration, right? It leads more to kind of like, oh my God, here it comes, like here's one, here's one more thing. Um, so I was, I'm wondering if anybody can speak to just how do you um, do measurement-based care in such a way that when you <clears throat> pull it apart, it doesn't pixelate, it actually scales to every single part of the system. First, I love that uh, that uh, metaphor of a of pixelation that that's a great that's a great um imagery to use for that yeah i i think i think this is the thing that's really tough because and i i'd love to hear from the other folks too um their experience what really sucks is that metrics can be a really beautiful thing and they can be a really ugly thing and there and it goes back to actually grace's very poignant question like why why do we care about this? Why, why are we doing this? And the truth is that there are some metrics that we have um, now say there's a lot of HEDIS metrics, I think that fall into this category, unfortunately. It's like, nobody cares about them really. They're, they're just checkoffs, they're perfunctory. They're, there's no heart behind them. So I think what I encourage folks to do is to just like all the other processes of implementation for integrated care, think of it as a culture change. And if you're thinking about it as a culture change, that means at the very outset, before you've decided to, to nail down that metric, you're gonna get with your frontline staff and say, we care about diabetes and we care about depression and we wanna make sure we do a good job with this. And we're thinking about these things. What do you think? How do you think we might be able to track these? You know, um, How do you think patients will respond to us asking them more questions about things like this, right? So that there's um, buy-in and a, a shift in culture where it's not administration saying, these are the metrics, this is what you're going to do, but it's the culture says, this is an us thing. We are together performing X number of tasks because we care about these areas. And yes, that takes more time and it's a little bit more messy. And you may end up getting to the same metric, but it's how you get there that matters. Right, it, and investing in that time up front, I think, is huge with regard to that. The other thing I would say that I'm I'm curious also as well for your organizations is like the number of metrics. I think that's another key problem that we have in primary care. There's just way too many metrics. I've seen some dashboards that look like ridiculous. They're really long spreadsheets. Who all in the clinic knows all these things, right? And it's just it's all split up between 25 different groups following 100 different metrics. Right, I just, I don't know that that's terribly helpful. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that when I, see a met, when I see a dashboard like that. So I think I think paring down metrics to those core essentials for teams is, I think, I think it's huge. I haven't quite solved the whole, you know, 
the whole team with regards to what does this mean for PCPs? What does this mean for the quality metrics? Uh, obviously, we're not integrated to the level that we need to be. If that's not the case, obviously, it could also be because I'm the director of behavioral health. And so, you know, just organizational, organizationally, I, I guess maybe I'm not high enough <laughs> up there. But for the BHC side, I, I constantly say to keep it simple, stupid over and over again, you know, the KISS method that I think the uh, <clears throat> the army or something military had started using and my basketball coach would use that. I think I've talked about it before, but it, it's for the BHC side of things, we don't measure anything that isn't our corest of core business. Core business is seeing patients and being accessible. And we wanna do a good job for the, the team and the PCPs. We, we wanna do right by our patients. So when you really, boil down those metrics, there's not very many. It's visits per day, it's warm handoffs per day, uh, unique patients served in a 12 month snapshot, patient engagement, which they get those, we, we get rolled into the thing, uh, the survey that's used across our entire organization. And then we give a primary care provider satisfaction of our surveys. And then our whole entire organization will do employee engagement because I need to know how I'm doing with my team. And that's it. We don't track these little, like how many times did you talk? I'm sorry, I'm being like, I'm sorry if you guys do track that. I don't track how many times you talk to a PCP and do a curbside consultation. We're not gonna do that because that should be that should be as normal and as common as breathing. I think I wanna highlight some things that we've already said so far that are really important. It has to be a decision that is, at the system level with the stakeholders of the people that are in that system and being served by that system. So if we're not collaborating across our team, if it's just a top-down dictating from administration or from a payer, for example, that maybe we don't feel the buy-in of exactly why we're reporting those things, or if it's too complex, because I feel like a lot of times what I've observed from different systems is that measurement is a little bit of feast or famine. Either we buy in and we want to have a hundred different metrics that we're tracking across, like you said, these really complicated dashboards, or it just feels really overwhelming and we don't measure much of anything at all. Um, and so this connection with what is important and why is it important to us is a really important driving question. And then we have to be collaborating. You know, the metrics that um, I was working on a project one time and someone said, well, what are your outcome measures? Um, you know, what are, how are you looking at change from, you know, this program? And they were having a really hard time wrapping around, like, how can we, you know, use what's already being collected? And we were talking about the fact that um, if we're taking a true, like, we're talking about a couple of different measurements here. We're talking about measuring our outputs, um, you know, how many warm handoffs we're doing, how many connections, you know, we're making, how many with patients. But then there's also a level of what are our outcomes? And our outcomes are not, if especially when we're in primary care, can't be completely disjointed from the outcomes that the system's looking at. We should be having an effect on diabetes and on, um, you know, the high blood pressure registry or whatever the patient registries that the team is talking about. And because then when we as behavioral health can come along and plug into that and connect and say, yeah, we do believe in whole person health. And here's how we're contributing to the system's larger idea of what health can look like. You know, it, 
it reinforces when we say, we're not just here to treat your crying patients. We're not just here to help with the patients who have anxiety and depression. We love to help with those people. And we know that a lot of them are only ever going to be seen in integrated care. So please let us see them, but that's not all that we can do. And so our metrics should reflect that as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I was over here laughing when, when Bridget used the the KISS acronym coming from a military background, I heard it often. Um, I think it was originated with the Navy. Um, but I think to kind of go with our podcast collaborators are all saying, what happens sometimes is we are doing the work, but we're also not capturing the work that we're doing. So I feel like that sometimes happens as well. So if the system is looking at diabetes, what are we already doing that's contributing to that? And how are we making sure that we're able to capture that within our EHR, right? So some of the keeping it simple is not that you create this whole new robust thing that you don't have the capacity for, but what are you already doing that contributes to this measure that the system is looking at? Which I think goes back to Deepu's original, which is the, the pixelating piece of it. Is there collaboration across all levels to make sure we're in sync and everyone is on, on one page? When Grace uh, sent out the the prompt for what we're, our, our topic, I, I took a few notes and I wrote down, find out mission goals of your organization and work to align with them. Just like, yeah, aligning with already existing structures for, you know, how are we going to contribute? So if there are certain quality metrics, yeah, what are we already doing? What systems are already in place to capture it? How can we contribute? tribute versus like Monica, you're saying creating all the, you know, reinventing the wheel. Like why, why would we do that? It's too, too convoluted. Right. And, and I, the extension of what Bridget is saying is to think about alignment of metrics with the system and not kind of think about, oh, we need to create behavioral health metrics uh, that we need to track and show how we're doing or making a difference, right? It's really saying we are at the table. We have a set of skills that we think can enhance your game. How can we participate? Where can we kind of fill in the gaps and other things that are coming? I think to Monica's point, every system is designed to um, kind of yield the results that it gets, right? So if you really begin to track the outcomes and we kind of then take a step back, the system is well arranged to kind of meet those or to get us to those outcomes that we are getting. And so then it's a question of how do we build it back or re-engineer the processes within the system to kind of get at that. When we were, uh, this was like six years ago, our clinic was brand new. It was like a, a new residency clinic and we were starting to do kind of univer universal screening for depression and, and quality of life and all of those things. And so I remember going to this workshop that really helped me work with the MAs here to kind of help us adopt that process a lot easier. So they talked about one, build an empathy map of the user, right? So if you're thinking about a new measure, you want to think about who all this is touched, really, how does it screw up their day, right? Because they're used to a particular flow and a particular pattern, and now we are inserting a new process. And then the second thing um, that I heard was that it was helpful was fail and fail fast because failure is data, right? And so uh, consistently be good at building prototypes because what you want is not going to come to you in the perfect way in the first iteration. It's going to take probably multiple iterations to build up the prototype to where you want to get to. Right? So give it like two, three weeks, or maybe even months to kind of get the whole team on board. And the last thing was 
people closest to the problem, they know the best solution. So if we are trying to move our system to the measurement-based care, let's say whatever new ones or old ones that we really want to strengthen, but we really don't have input from people who are directly inputting this data, engaging with this data, and they have no reference point as to what this means for the larger system, uh, there's going to be less success at the front lines. And then every six months when the, you know, the bean counters are measuring and looking at the measures, they're like, we're not performing. And then, you know, um, so that, that was the other thing that made me think about from what Monica said. The other point I'm thinking, beginning to think about is the type of measurements that we use, right? So I think, um, and I know Bridget will have a, a, a lot to say from a contextual um, kind of a perspective to say, um, we have, I think at one podcast, we talked about like the overuse of PHQ-9 and like the, the, the dangers and the pitfalls of PHQ-9 and the benefits of PHQ-9. But then is, uh, I want to maybe open up the aperture um, if <laughs> we have a question in the chat that says, do we still drink if Deepu was the one who said contextual? <laughs> I think we still drink when that happens. Um, so I just want to open up the discussion to say, how do we think about um, quality of life, kind of more contextual assessments rather than these clinical assessments that we are used to or that is kind of being championed by the different systems? Yeah, and before we jump into that, let me just clarify for the audience. We're mixing a bunch of different sort of metrics, but there's categories, right? So there's there's process metrics, and that's like what Bridget talked about, yeah. where she's she's tracking um, activity that the team does um, related to their care, right? So that's one kind of metric, and then you have outcome metrics, right, which are really tracking the outcomes of care, like uh, PHQ nine would be a typical outcome metric or what Deepu is talking about now, uh, quality of life or functional assessment sort of type uh, metric that measures an outcome of, a, of an intervention or a series of interventions, right? And then, um, and then the third category I would say is what Monica talked about earlier, where you have financial metrics, right? Where you have, um, you know, sort of uh, costs and uh, income generated by your integrated care service. So uh, we're, we're talking about those in a sort of blended fashion, but they are different um, and have served different purposes and are used by different teams in the clinic. Right. And, and I think, would it be fair to say, Nathalie, the uh, clinical operational financial uh, CJ Peaks uh, view of integrated or worldview of integrated care would be a good reference point to categorize these conversations? In. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and they're all important. They're all important. It's important to have feedback, right? When we talk about metrics, it's just about feedback that helps drive uh change hopefully in your organization right so back to Deepu's point you have a system the system maintains homeostasis you know it's achieving the results it's getting because it's designed to achieve those results and you're trying to to uh input some form of dynamic change into the system that hopefully will achieve a different result and you're trying to measure not just the result but the process and the financial impact of that so the three worldviews uh that cj peak posited definitely applied to our metrics conversation. So I'm sorry, Deepu, I think I lost track of your question and all that. So I think the other, so if we talk about clinical measures or clinical outcomes that we wanna track and we begin to think about, if we were to think beyond what the world was kind of used to, or at least in the, in the common 
lexicon we kind of hear for universal depression screening and universal, maybe some people do anxiety screening, and those are the most common ones. If, if we can open up the aperture a little bit, what may be other things that we can begin to think about that may actually look at more than just one thing and maybe look at the patient in, as a whole? Um, and I'll, I'll kind of let Bridget take that first because I, I know where the answer is uh, going to go, and it'll be a good one. I don't even know where my my answer is going to go. I'm super big on accessibility because if we're looking across the healthcare landscape, everywhere you go involving something related to to behaviors or to do with behaviors, it's there's lack of access. And so it's about for me the bigger picture uh, and helping fortify the primary care system, which I've definitely stolen very clearly from uh, Jeff Writers and have his influence that. If we can basically strengthen primary care as the system in place and then be able to get, again, that access ramped up, that's where we can start making these sweeping differences and these uh, sweeping improvements. So, yeah, generally speaking, I want to help somebody improve the life that they want to live. I, I really, truly could not internally care less about depression scores only in as much as it allows them to live a life that's more important. So don't misunderstand me. So it's, if somebody's depression scores drop, which then allows them to live the life they wanna live, then that's that's a win. If your depression scores drop and they drop just for the dropping sake, that really as a clinician, it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything to me. So um, my number one goal as a, as a clinician and as uh, influencing a system is to help patients to connect with what's important to them and then live a life lined up with that. And I feel like if we do that, these other things fall into place. And so that's why it's like, you know, don't I'm, I'm you know using some hyperbole. When people realign with what's important, they go back to school and they get the job they want and they they value themselves so they uh, get a partner who, you know, respects them in the way that they want to be respected. You'll see in ACT, you know, the ACT literature will talk about this, the depression scores, anxiety scores get better. But again, you just can't go in with it with that mindset. But just as a system and as a whole, uh, access is everything, uh, in, in my personal opinion. Right. So in, in other words, what you're saying is if the PHQ-9 scores, for example, drops, and they're still not kind of engaging in things that matter to them, like in their home life or in their work life or in their personal life, it may not really have any additive effects on their life that we hoped it would. Right. So there's some competing needs and we've talked about some different purposes for our metrics. Part of it is to like prove that, you know, we're doing what the financial piece is paying for. Part of it is to whatever. And I think asking ourselves again and again, like, so what, so what, so what is important? Why is this important? But when we get to the big, so one of the challenges, I think when we get to that bigger picture, so let's say you're measuring someone's quality of life, or you're measuring functional change and you're looking on that big picture, but then how do you prove, I think the natural question from someone who was trying to figure out, okay, so you've measured this, but you're measuring quality of life. Who says that's even connected to what you did? You know what I mean? So like if the closer the, the outcome measure is to the service that we're providing, like I can say, Hey, I did these 12 and this set of 12 encounters. I'm demonstrating my productivity. I also have numbers that 
Uh, the further removed we get from that for other people, the harder it is to prove that we're the ones that made the change and proving that we're the ones that made the change. Like, I don't care for my own ego. Who cares if I'm the one that made the change? But I want somebody to keep paying for this service. I want this program to be sustainable financially. And I need to connect these patient outcomes to the work that I'm doing or that my program is doing. Does that, is that making sense? Like how to? Yeah. 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 I, it's I, not. I, oh, go ahead, Neff. I was just going to say, like, I've, I've, I've played this conversation out a bazillion times over a 21 plus years in primary care. And, you know, what I've, what I've come to accept is that there is no magic bullet uh, measurement that's going to describe everything that I do um, and the impact that, that I have uh, on, on our team. And I think the reason is, and it, that doesn't mean, by the way, I, just in case you're wanting to shut off the podcast now, if you love measurement, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-measurement at all. I actually, I'm pro-measuring. But what I learned is, the reason why is because we are just like the rest of primary care. How do you assess the effectiveness of a primary care provider? Like, just think about that for a moment. How do you assess that impact? Well, you're not going to assess it with one score, right? I mean, think about the myriad of things that a primary care provider is intervening on with patients throughout a day, from a skin rash to liver disease to diabetes to asthma to all the slew of behavioral health conditions that they see every day, right? So there's no single thing that's going to ever uh, describe the impact of primary care. So there have to be multiple ways to tell the story. Some are better than others. And I think about measurement very much like having our own lab panel. And this is where I think we do need to have some innovation in our field. Um, you know, like COCM, the collaborative care model, has its own lab panel, right? It basically says we're going to follow oftentimes PHU-9 scores, sometimes also including GAD-7 scores. And, and that's going to be our lab that tells us something about what we're doing clinically here, right? In PCBH, we have to have a more sophisticated panel of labs, right? Because we have a whole slew of things that someone that we may be seeing patients for, right? So we may be seeing patients for ADHD and we need sort of measurement that helps us uh, keep track of patients there and keep track of outcomes there. Uh, we may have uh, folks uh, struggling with OCD or uh, managing their behavioral aspects of their diabetes, et cetera, right? And so I think, I think the conversation for me has to shift from looking for the big thing, which... I've been doing this for 21 years. I haven't found it yet. Not that I'm, you know, Mr. Perfect here, but I just don't think it exists. I've, I've tried every quality of life measure. I've, liked, I've tried to Duke. I've tried to, you know, none of those completely captures the picture of everything that is primary care behavioral health any more than there's one metric for primary care. So I think, I think where we do need to get more sophisticated though is as clinicians, having more of a sort of a toolbox, like a physician knows, hey, uh, first visit with a diabetic, we need this panel of labs, right? 
And I think we can do that sort of thing, especially if we got more sophisticated with technology, where in my perfect world, I wouldn't be necessarily doing it in the visit because I want to focus like Bridget does on the patient, on context, on helping right away. But I, I wish I could send a patient a link, say, okay, these are the labs I want. These are the behavioral health labs I want. And I'm going to send it to them. They're going to fill it out at home on their smartphone. And then we have that. That then helps inform how we um, kind of uh, proceed with care going forward in addition to everything else we do in clinic. I think that's where the level of sophistication, we could up our game there from a, and again, this is for that specific category of outcome metrics. This is different than the other stuff. There's an interesting side conversation happening in the chat that I want to bring in so our listeners can hear it. Um, Bridget, will you say what you typed basically about kind of how we're demonstrating this effectiveness or what else we can look at? Yeah. And I completely agree with Neftali just on there not being just a magic bullet of, oh, if we can just show this thing. And I, I love the metaphor that you're using as far as creating and telling this whole story. And ways I think of telling that story is if you can get big pockets of the patient population, maybe somebody with diabetes who has seen a BHC versus those who have not, which we actually did at our, our organization and found that folks uh, were a lot more compliant if they had seen a BHC. Now it's not causal because it'd be correlational maybe those who were more motivated agreed to see a BHC and we can get into this huge thing. Uh, we had some ways of trying to protect that for, for another day. But the point being is you can take big pockets of patients who have seen BHC versus who haven't. Now, that's still not perfect because I'm hoping that the fact that BHCs are here, that we're gonna help the PCP step their game up with psychosocial aspects. So I'm hoping that everybody's numbers go up, which is another thing you could look at is just, outcomes in general pre and post BHC. That can also be difficult because what if you add care coordination at the same time? How can you prove that it's BHC and not care coordination or care coordination, not BHC? Uh, but you can also start looking at retention of, of PCPs, PCP recruitment. I would say, you know, in my role, I meet with all the new PCPs who are coming to our, our system for an orientation to BHC services. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you, you know, there hasn't been one person who didn't say that a major reason that they said yes to this organization was because of the amount of BHC support they had. If, and then we've had folks on the surveys literally say that they would have retired five years ago if it wasn't for the BHC support. So again, you're telling that story of you're, you're attracting more PCPs into your system. You're keeping more PCPs in your system, which means that you're gonna have a stronger safety network for your community. So at the end of the day, I'm not overly worried about if this patient that I saw, their depression dropped uh, because if I'm able to help the medical team understand what's going on with that patient's depression so they can interact with that patient in a way that is more engaging. And then the patient is more engaged and from a customer service business standpoint is more likely to attend and stay engaged in our clinic because there was BHC support. Even if it didn't get better, but they just were like, oh, that was really great that I got to see the BHC that day. They stay more engaged. That means that they're going to get more access to preventative measures. And that's where you start seeing some of this like life-saving stuff happen. So it's it, you're playing the long game at all times, which is the very reason why nurses have a job, which is the very reason why care coordination has a job. It's the reason why the whole system has a job. So I don't feel that I need an additional layer to prove that the BHC is needed. Uh, the patients tell you that. The providers tell you that outcomes in big pockets start painting that picture of that. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I say all the time, like care coordination, if care coordination did not improve any outcome, I, I mean, that'd be really sad, but I love having care coordinators. They allow me to see so many more patients and get customer service. And so when folks are at home, unable to get an appointment with you because you're too booked up and care coordination is able to take somebody and work with them on resources, which I'm not really good at anyways. And that allows me to see another patient. So they're not sitting at home, not getting the service. So again, you're playing that long game. Interdisciplinary collaboration. What are we talking about here? Um, I have appreciated this conversation so much. And I just want to highlight a few things that stand in my mind as pearls that we've discussed. Um, the question to ask yourself is what is important to your community, to your system, to your patients, and how to paint that picture. And though that needs to guide your selection of metrics, you need to be thinking about, you know, not only the output, but also the outcomes and how those things connect together to demonstrate what you want to say. We need to be collaborating across stakeholders, across the financial piece and the operational piece and the clinical piece. We need to be thinking about the real world practicality of not having a thousand metrics, but having the ones that are most important and being able to collect them in a way that doesn't break down the actual care that we're wanting to deliver in the first place. This has been fantastic conversation. And I hate to close this up. We may have a measurement part two coming up soon, I think, for some more of these issues. Because then the question is, how do we take this and drive our program development? And so I feel kind of a, a QI topic coming up here in the near future uh, for our podcast. So um, Can I add something real quick, Grace? Because mm -hmm. I just want to highlight a little bit of uh, what Bridget was talking about. So the other thing I would encourage people to remember is, so essentially there's, with integrated care, like lots of there's a continuum. The closer you are aligned to primary care style stuff, the more you're going to be using typically process metrics. So a lot of what Bridget were talking about are process metrics. The closer you're aligned to a specific disease-based uh, model of care, the more you're going to be aligned with specific clinical outcome metrics right? If you're doing MAT, if you're doing COCM, et cetera, right? And so along that continuum, that's going to determine a lot of what your metrics are going to look like. And then the last thing I'll say is if there are some enterprising young people out there who want to take that idea I put out there and say, how do we create labs for BHCs to use? There's a business opportunity there. You heard it from me, but you can steal it. Yes. <laughs> steal it but he only wants a few percentage points cut <laughs> uh well i we are gonna hop to our special segment um and then come back for our closing meditation good morning thank you for joining me um, i wonder if you would mind by just introducing yourself sure i am uh, jason herndon i'm a licensed psychologist and i am the director of the uncg psychology clinic uh, in greensboro north carolina and i am also uh on the board of directors for cfha can you tell me a little bit about your history with cfha sure so i joined cfha a number of years ago when i was in graduate school no i think i was on internship um, and so I got to do my first conference when I was on postdoc, um, and I've just sort of been involved ever since. Cool. And then how did you come to be on the board? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So um, Neftali Serrano, the CEO, um, and I had interacted some. He was on a part of one of the grants that we had here with our graduate students. Um, and so we had met and talked and, you know, we met before, but um, we also began to talk a little bit about, I had questions around sort of what could we be doing differently at the graduate level to be teaching folks to prepare them for integrated primary care. And so I'd done some work with the organization around that. And so he reached out uh, and asked me if I'd be interested in being nominated to be on the board. And I said, yes, assuming that <laughs> that wouldn't happen. Um, and so I wrote my you know, board essay and you know everybody voted. And then um, I was chosen to be on the board. When was that? So I started, oh gosh, it, everything this year feels like it was either yesterday or 12 so years true. ago. So it would have been, <laughs> um, I started in January, Okay, I want to say. So this would have been like fall, winter. Okay. I'm a little worried that time is permanently broken because I, I have the exact it. same problem <laughs> that you're talking about. Yeah, it's like I'm pretty sure it wasn't yesterday, so it must have been 12 years ago. There we go. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so could you tell me more about the function of the board, what the board does, kind of or, that role? Yeah, so the board really has sort of two jobs, um, and they're sort of big jobs, and so they break down into different ways. But, you know, the first is fiduciary, which is a fun word to say, but basically it just means, you know, we have to pay attention to sort of the funding of the organization and what is happening um, and make sure that the funding is um, being used as intended and, you know, in accordance with the organization's, you know, rules and then also within the rules of, you know, nonprofits. And so that is one of our roles. The other role is really just to make sure that the organization is being being run um, both sustainably, but also consistently with its mission, right? Um, which is sort of set, yes, by the board and our bylaws and that type of thing, but there is sort of a member influence there as well. Does the board work on particular initiatives? They can, certainly. Mm -hmm. They can. So there are several board committees. Um, I happen to be on the governance board committee. Um, and so, you know, based on sort of what the committee's focus is, we do work on various things as it relates to sort of the board's mission and how things will function and that type of thing. So what has your personal experience been like serving on the board? Has it been what you expected? Yeah, it's been really interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know that I really knew what to expect um, in being on a board. Uh, you know, I'm on another board, but they can be so different. Um, and so this one is actually, it's been very collegial. It's been very efficient, which is not universally true of board work. <laughs> um, I don't think committee and efficient yeah. usually goes together. It's so surprising. It's so surprising most of the time, which is really great. Um, but yeah, you know, my work on the governance committee has been just actually very fulfilling, you know, in a way that I didn't expect, you know, um, there was something very nice about having a, you know, we wanted to figure out, um, you know, how do we set up this, you know, structure within the bounds of the organization um, to incorporate, you know, the Just Medicine Committee, or which is now a committee, right, that was one of the issues that I worked on. Um, and so it was just kind of fun, right? It's very problem solving oriented, I would say. That's awesome. What kind of time commitment has that been for you? Yeah, so not too bad. I would say, um, so we meet every other month, I want to say, um, for a couple of hours. Um, those meetings are one run really well, um, so they don't go over that type of thing. And then we meet as a committee an hour at a time, usually a couple times a month, um, depending on what we have going on. So I would say 
three to five hours a month, maybe. Um, you know, that might be different for some of the other board members, but that's definitely been my experience up to this point. Okay. And so I think this has been a great overview and it helps me understand a little bit more about the what the board does. I mean, this, these questions aren't like just for show. I also wasn't very well informed. Um, so I was wondering though, for our hypothetical listener, or maybe one day for me, um, yeah. what would it look like for someone to get more involved? How would they go about seeking out an opportunity to be on the board? Sure, absolutely. So um, that's a great question. Um, one way to get involved in terms of the board is to um, look out for our nomination periods. So um, board terms tend to last for either three or six years. Um, so when you sign on, you have three years you know, to be on the board, and then you have the option of renewing for a second three-year term if you so choose. Um, but it doesn't quite work like that just because, you know, people, jobs change or industries change or that type of thing. And so it's not always, you know, every three years we have a new crop, right? And every six years, you know, we have a new crop. Um, so some people are on different schedules. And so we just have to keep an eye out for when the advertise via the listserv and at conferences and that type of thing, sort of when we're doing uh, nominations. Um, and you can absolutely self-nominate uh, if you would like. Um, you know, you might get someone, if you've worked with other people in the organization, they might suggest to you, you know, that you run to be on the board, which is what happened with me. Um, but yeah, you know, so I think that's probably the easiest way. Uh, the second way is to be appointed to the board. It's a little bit more of an opaque process, which is one of the other things that we're working on in the governance, uh, you know, board committee. Awesome. Okay, well, this has been super informative. Is there anything else that you think would be helpful for someone to know or just that sure. you want to say? Yeah, you know, I think really that it's, um, it's definitely something that early career folks can do. Um, I'm sort of mid-early career, if you will, so not brand new, but not mid-career yet either. And so, you know, I think that sometimes there's a sense that, um, you know, we don't, we haven't had enough experience or we don't know enough or have this skill set yet to contribute. And I, I really have not had that experience. Um, people have been very helpful, very, you know, patient when they needed to be with me and sort of teaching me things like that type of stuff. But also I think they've been very open to me sort of stepping in um, and just being vocal about the way that I think and the way that I see things, you know, I think that they really do want that. And so it's the diversity of opinion, I think, that is most useful um, when you're sort of coming into a situation like this. That's awesome. And, you know, to the extent that that diversity of opinion can be met with collaboration and respectful dialogue and working together. And it sounds like that's really what you've experienced on the board. That's absolutely. so fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's been great. I'm really enjoying it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Happy to, happy to. I was excited to be asked my debut <laughs> podcast appearance. So, well, you did a very <laughs> wonderful job. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, thank you. This has been a um, such a rich show, and I want to send it over to Deepu to close this out the way we always do. All right, uh, this is something to kind of take us away from the measurement stuff and just to kind of center ourselves as far as our parting thoughts. It's a little poem called The God Who Only Knows Four Words by Hafiz. Every child has known God not the God of names, not the God of don'ts, not the God who ever does anything weird, but the God who only knows four words and keeps repeating them saying, come dance with me, come 
stands. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deepu. Thank you, everyone. It was so good to have our whole team here. Thank you, listeners. And we'll talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.